0: Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Rosemary Flayton. Rosemary is Executive Director for the Center for Healthy Relationships and Instructor of Ministry at John Brown University.
1: Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 15, verses 1-3 through 3, and verses 11-32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The, father, or the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, he had a younger son, got together all that he had, set off for a distant country where they squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And your father has killed the fattened calf because, he has, because he, has, he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you, gave, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends.
0: Good morning, JVU. Thank you, Alec, for reading God's Word this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Rosemary Flayton. I'm the Executive Director at the Centre for Healthy Relationships. And I, my husband and I moved from Canada about five months ago. Uh, before that, I was part of the preaching team at Canada's largest church, Uh, and adjunct professor on topics such as leadership spiritual formation and sexuality and sometimes all how all three of those connect that was an interesting class um i am married my husband's here norley we have three adult kids two of which are married and we are just excited to be here at jbu this is relationship week this is relationship week at jbu and i have the chance to clear up two misconceptions about relationship week are you ready The first one is, how many of you, when you hear the word relationship, think romantic? Be honest. I knew it. I knew it because I keep hearing this, that somehow the center is just about having healthy romantic relationships. May that stop right here, right now. Okay? I wish that this could be called the Center for Healthy Friendships, the Center for Healthy Families the Center for Healthy Roommates and Work Colleagues, and the Hel- and the Center for Healthy Romantic Relationships and Marriage. We are here for all relationships on campus. So please, if you want to talk to us about a relationship issue and any of those, we are here. We are part of the JBU community, and we are here to help you, the students, have the tools that you need in order to develop healthy relationships. We do that through seminars, we do that through workshops, having conversations, events, such like the one we had on Tuesday night, which has talked about the theology and practice of singleness. We had over a hundred people and we hardly got to any of the questions. So I'm kind of thinking we might do a Why Singleness 2.0. So if you missed the first one, make sure you get the second one or if you were there, come again because your question probably didn't get answered. We also have a Why Married event tonight, a talk back with panel, both faculty and students talking about the theology and the practice of marriage. But remember, the Center for Healthy Relationships is not just for romantic relationships. No more. Okay. Stop that. Stop that rumor, that that reputation. Also, you don't have to make an appointment to come and see us. You can, but if our door is open, then come on in and there'll be somebody there to talk to you about that. So let's turn our focus on the parable that was read today. Jesus told this story. There was two groups of people that were listening. tells us at the very first of chapter 15, that there were the sinners. you can kind of see them sitting on this side. don't take that personally. The sinners were over on this side. The Pharisees were on this side, okay, or whatever. but there was two groups of them, and you can bet they would not have mixed. And if you were here on Tuesday, you would know that we looked at the parallel journeys of the two brothers and how both of them led to selfishness. Selfishness, that having an excessive or an exclusive concern for oneself or one's own advantage, one's own pleasure, one's own welfare, regardless of how it impacts others. It was both sons' desires to do things their own way. They kind of had this egotistical bravado of elevating their own wishes above all of those around them. The younger son, he demanded his inheritance before it was due him. And in essence, he was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. The older son, refusing to come into the celebration, drew his father out and and demanded that he be treated better, better at least than that no good son of yours. In both cases, both brothers were selfish, egotistical, demanding, and in doing so, the relationship with their father and each other was broken. And that's what selfishness does. It's a cancer that eats away at our relationships. It destroys relationships. It is impossible to have a healthy relationship. You may have a relationship, but you won't have a healthy relationship if one of you is selfish. And then if you get two selfish people in a relationship, it exponentially deteriorates quickly. Because it's all about me. Now, I did some research here on campus. And to those of you who, those of, if you're one of the 49 who got that, that survey asking, what does selfishness look like? Thank you for sending it back to me. These were some of the things that came up as people responded about real Real things on JBU right now, examples of how people are selfish. Things like cancelling or rescheduling events to suit their own needs, regardless of the impact on others. Keeping score to ensure that I'm not giving more than I'm getting. Ignoring a person who's perceived as too needy or uncool. Pretending to be asleep so I don't have to respond to my spouse's touch. Selfishness is rampant. It's ubiquitous. I I just love that word. It's ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere. Man, I don't like the effect of it. I just like the word. It's everywhere. It's an epidemic proportions in our community, in our families, in our relationships, in my own life. I have this belief that somehow I'm indispensable and so people need to serve me. I see that my, that my view of other people's sin, well, it's way worse than the little itty-bitty in me. It's kind of that log and speck. Remember that story of the scripture of Jesus' words? I hold grudges. I keep score. I divvy out my time a little bit at a time. It's kind of calculated, metering it out. I have a scarcity mentality that I need to take care of myself first. I pick and I choose who's worthy of my time. That's my confession. But my challenge to myself and to those of you that were here on Tuesday was that we would allow the spirit of truth to show us where selfishness pops up. Like David who says, search my heart and know me. See if there be any wicked, any selfish way in me to acknowledge the sin of selfishness. that really comes out of making ourselves an idol. It's an act of idolatry to make ourselves number one. Now, one of the commandments right up there with do not murder, do not commit adultery was don't have any other gods before me. And I think what we've done sometimes is it's like we've created a little fat Buddha with, you know, put my face on it, (laughs) put your face on it. And we put that on the shelves of our life and we're like, oh, yeah. Bow down. Metaphorically, we're all fat little Buddhas sitting on the altars. It's a nasty image, isn't it? (laughs) But God says in Ezekiel, they'll realize how devastated I was by their betrayals, by their voracious lust to gratify themselves with their idolatries. And that's how we ended on Tuesday. It was a tough message, but I promised you that there was more to the story we only dealt with half the story on Tuesday. Now, rather than this story being called the prodigal son or the the story of the two lost sons, I wish in our Bibles that the, you know, the heading above this part said the selfless love of the father, because that's, that's the, the high point of this story. You see, God, the Father, is the hero in this story. J.I. Packer, he, he you know, kind of bemoans the fact that we've actually made the gospel so much about ourselves. It's about what God can do for us. Actually, the gospel is who Jesus is, who God is, who the Father in this story is. That's the good news. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's, I'm going to recount for us and and let's try and see the story through the father's eyes in this case. So the the son demands his inheritance. He leaves, you know, he's, he's just taking off and you can just imagine the father standing there, heartbroken, tears, maybe, maybe coming down his cheeks. His beloved son has taken off And he goes in the house and, you know, he's thinking about this. I wonder what goes on. And as the son is, you know, off living this wild life, the father sits at home and he starts to stew. And he goes, something starts to take root. And he's like, wait a second, that son of mine, man, if he ever shows up here again, he's got some groveling to do. So the son shows up, he knocks on the door, the the, the servant opens the door and oh, it kind of gets this look of disdain. He said, can I talk to, to my father? Well, we'll see if he wants to see you. So come, waits and he waits and he waits. Eventually, the servant kind of ushers him in. And as he walks in, before the son has a chance to say anything, the father leaps out of his chair. How dare you share your, show your face around here? You do no good. Did I get the story right? No. <laughs> I hope you were tracking with me. <laughs> The father had every right to do that. He'd been hurt. He'd been disrespected. He'd been shamed. That was exactly what the son deserved. That's what should have happened. And in fact, that's what the listeners, these Pharisees and these sinners listening, that's where they would think in their mind that this was going to go. Because that was what would have been expected of the father. But the good news is, that's not the way God deals with his wild living, his vagrant daughters and sons. No, the correct retelling of this story has the father waiting, watching for his sons. And when he sees them a long ways off, he's filled not with anger, not with, oh, you get out of here, my son. He's like compassion. And he him he lifts up his, his robes and he runs which was completely unbefitting of a man a grown man as a man in that culture you did not run that was for children you did not show your ankles that was for children he did that he didn't care he came after that son he embraced him he kissed him now let's stop for a second where had this son just been the pigs die what do pigs smell like can you get it? I wish we had like a, what is that? A 4D, you know, where something? the smell could come out from underneath the, the right? <laughs> kind of like when you're in Disney World. Oh, okay. pigsty time. And to top it off, this was a Jewish family and pigs were unclean. And the father did not say, okay, have a bath. And then we will hug. <laughs> now he just wraps his arms around him. He embraces him. He kisses him. You're mine. You've come home. You're mine. You're home. And then he gives him the best robe. Some theologians say he probably took his own robe off and put it on him, which would be fitting of Jesus teaching elsewhere. If somebody takes your cloak, give them their tunic as well. He gives him his ring of... Uh, Picture of acceptance and power, he gives them sandals. We think, oh, that's nice, give him some sandals. Actually, that signified that he was a son. If he'd been a servant, he would have been in bare feet. But the fact that he was given sandals showed, you're my son. You're back, you're part of the family. There was complete restoration to the position of a son. And what we see in this father's actions is a very opposite of the word we talked about and what we looked at on Tuesday. The Tuesday word was selfishness. The Thursday word is selflessness. A selfless love. This father was full of selflessness, an unselfish disregard for himself for the betterment of someone else. This son received the father's selflessness. Selflessness. That's a lot of siss, isn't it? Selflessness. And this self, selflessness, it was not just this private bestowing, what's oh, so good to have you home? No, this was not a private moment. The father throws a party, the excitement, the celebration was extended to the whole community. And at that party, they served meat. And we're not talking Chick-fil-A nuggets, right? I love Chick-fil-A. Do you know that Canada doesn't have any Chick-fil-As? I know, right? I still have a hard time driving past a Chick-fil-A without stopping because I love Chick-fil-A nuggets. I digress. They had meat. They had meat. They had a fattened calf. They had the very best. There was no skimping. Let's bring out the burgers. Uh Uh-uh. Let's bring out the whole cow. Why? Because the whole community was there. They got the biggest and the best. And this feast signifies his full forgiveness of his son. It's a foreshadowing of the the marriage feast of the lamb that's described in Revelation. And he communicates to the whole community, "I have shown my true character of selfless love and forgiven through grace and generosity, and you should do the same." Within the context of Luke 15, we, we skipped about I think we skipped eight or nine verses there. But it's actually really important that we take a look at what else is there, because there's three things in this story that were lost actually there were four things but two of them were in the in the third one the first one is is lost sheep and the shepherd goes out leaves the 99 he goes after the one and when he finds the lost sheep he puts it on his shoulders and he comes home and he calls his friends and his neighbors to come and celebrate him number two the lost coin a woman's looking everywhere she lights a lamp she gets out she sweeps her whole house and i don't i'm not talking a swiffer here like this would have been a hardcore let's clean in every cup in every corner to find this lost coin. She calls her friends and her neighbors to rejoice with her. When I think about the community where I grew up, small town in rural rural Canada, if the whole community had been invited, that would have meant we would have included the Lutherans, the Pentecostals, the United Church, the Catholic, the people that never went to church, the neighbor who I never saw sober, the neighbors that lived together the lame and the blind, the rich and the poor, those that voted left and some of those that voted right and all of them, the whole community. Nobody was excluded in their invitation to the feast. Everybody gets an invitation to the feast. What an example. You know, we think again about these, the Pharisees and the, and the, um, the sinners that were sitting there. The, the Pharisees were like, They didn't like the fact that Jesus ate with sinners, right? It even mentions that, I think, in verse 2 or 3. But I kind of almost feel like Jesus was poking at the Pharisees going here. You know what? We're going to invite everybody, not just the ones who look like us. We're going to invite everybody because God's lavish love, his forgiveness, and his reconciliation is for everyone. So these selfless acts of reckless love that the father does, this radical forgiveness, unmerited grace, extravagant acceptance, the father doesn't hold anything back. He gives it all to his son. Now, he'd already given the son his inheritance. So if we think about that, it's a parallel that would be like our eternal salvation, our eternal life. But what the father does in this act is he bestows his love and acceptance again and again and again. You see, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no records of wrong. The father didn't say to the younger son, hmm, didn't I already, like, give you something? You're back for more? <laughs> love keeps no records of wrong. This lavish, selfless love on his younger father, I mean, on the younger son. So what does the father show? What kind of love does he show to his older son? I think actually the love that is shown to the older son is even more significant. It's more undeserving than the younger son, given the actions of the son. So let me just review those. Remember, he refused to go into the house he draws the father out, this act of selfishness, basically like a little toddler, say, I'm not going in, and you can't make me, is almost how he acts, right? He doesn't care about the father's reputation. And then he explodes: listen up, old man. I've been the good son around here. You're a deadbeat for having a son like that. And look at him all like he squandered, he exaggerated instead of just wild living now, suddenly he squandered the money on prostitutes. There's this disrespect, this rudeness. And at that point, again, the father has every right to throw this son out of the family. You don't talk to me like that. And that's what the father, the father doesn't do what the listeners would have expected to at that point. Rather, the father responds in love and a completely undeserved grace to this older son. He maintains the son's dignity. He calls him his son. There's no loss of position or privilege. He assures him that everything that he has belongs to the son. There's no stingy metering out a little bit here, a little bit there. Everything I have is yours. There's no denial of forgiveness. This son, like the younger son... Is offered full access to everything, despite his egotism, his entitled attitude, his broken relationships with both the father and the son. Now, I I suspect that when you've heard this story told before, much of the father's welcome of the younger son is is what's emphasized, right? Would that be a fair thing to say? And I don't want to diminish that in any way. But let's remember that the younger son had come back. He was contrite. He was apologetic. He's ready to take the lowest rank in the household. The older son shows no sign of this kind of humility. And I think we often overlook the significance of this selfless response of the father to the oldest son. It was while the son was still angry. It was while he still refused to come in. He was still resistant to his father's overtures of grace. He was the father extended. He offered his unconditional love. I think this is one of the most powerful examples of agape love. A couple weeks ago, we had a talkback panel on the different kinds of love. And Dr. Jamie Collins from our education department provided this definition of agape love. It's a Greek word. And so as we try to understand it, it's that all-encompassing love that moves God towards us. It's the father running to the son. It's the father coming out from the party. So this agape love moves towards us. It's a love that costs him everything. Like the father who'd given everything, everything you have, everything I have is yours, everything. It's a love that is a pure gift for our benefit, even though we don't deserve it. It's a kind of selfish love that gives selfless love, Caught myself there, that gives everything while the son is still angry. It's the kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross. Look at this verse in Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely does anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love, his own agape for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still older brothers, Christ died for us. This selfish. The definition of selfish is having this excessive or exclusive concern for oneself or one's own advantage, pleasure, welfare, regardless of how it impacts others. Selfless is a choice to seek the well-being of someone else at your own expense. It's a generous love that gives itself and its resources without expecting a promise of anything in return. You see, a God love will always cost us something. It costs the Father. It costs Jesus. It's going to co- cost us. I don't know if you noticed that there are a lot more verses in this passage in this parable about the younger son than the older. Don so say it's almost double, actually. And I don't think it's because the younger brother's story is more important. I believe it's because the older brother's story was unfinished. We're left hanging. Will the older son accept the love of the father? Will he continue to wallow in his self righteousness, his anger, his egotistical view of himself? Will he keep his brother at a distance? What will he do? I love this picture painted by Rembrandt the younger son kneeling before the father. Where's the older son? standing off the side. We don't know. We don't this... what's one of the few parables that Jesus doesn't kind of tie up. He leaves us hanging in it. The insidiousness of selfishness has a greater potential, I think, to keep us apart, estranged from others, than even our wild living. Now, do not leave here and say, Rosemary said it's okay to do wild living. I did not, and I would not. Okay? What I'm saying is that the pride and selfishness that causes us to act like the older brother will break down our relationships, and we need to deal with it in our lives. We need to allow the Holy Spirit, because, you know, the stench of the pigsty is nothing compared to the stench of a whitewashed tomb. So something I have learned is if I hope to pass on love, if I hope to deal with the selfishness of my own life, I have to first receive it. I call this the fill and spill principle. So imagine you've got a cup, and I'm pouring orange juice into it, to overflowing, what's going to flow out? What's going to spill over? Thank you, you're awake. Okay, so what about if I did coffee? Let's try this again. Pour coffee in. Thank you, right. So you're sure, like if I pour in orange juice, it's not gonna be coffee that overflows? No, of course not. But it's the same way with us. If we're filled up, if we allow God's forgiveness and He has a godly love to pour in, to ask us what's gonna spill out. Love begets love. Grace spurs on grace, and mercy ushers in mercy. Forgiveness spawns forgiveness. Freely you have received. Let's try it again. Freely you have received. Freely give. So as we bring these two chapels to a close, I want us to think about this. We started with the effect of our selfishness on our relationships and how that breaks it down. And then we moved into actually what it is. It's the root of, it's the root of idolatry in our lives. And once we allow God to deal with that and we receive his forgiveness and his grace and his love pours into us, then it spills out and it changes our relationship. But you can't can't change the order somehow. It's got to be in that order. A recognition of the impact it has on our horizontal relationships is actually breaking our vertical relationship with God. So God pours in restoring this, and then it flows back out. Agape love. Now, I can't manufacture selflessness. If I tried... I might have enough to get me going till about eight o'clock in the morning and that's probably before I even arrived here at school. I can't do it. If I try to fill it up on my own, it won't work. I have to be filled up this way before there's anything to pass on. You know, I, am a very visual thinker. I often think in metaphors. So when I'm trying to think about like, how do I get these relationships, these horizontal relationships that we talked about, particularly yes, last on Tuesday, get them kind of lined up perfectly. I think about iron filings. imagine you had a million iron filings and you were, you were charged with getting them all in the straight line, healthy. You just about had it, and somebody bumped the table. Oh, messed up again. You try again. You get them almost lined up. And you sneeze. Ah, oh, there it goes again. What does it take to line up iron filings? A magnet. That's what this is. Allowing God to line up the iron filings, and when we do, we will overcome these selfish tendencies in our own lives. Will you dream with me for a minute? Imagine, imagine what it would be like here on JBU, in the dorms and J. Alvin and Hutch, I know I've missed one, what's the other one? Mayfield, I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm still new in the dorms, the North Slope, the West Winds, the commuters. Imagine if everyone, even just those of us that are in the chapel today, decided to give up our selfish ways, decided to deal with the root of selfishness in our lives, open our hearts and minds to be filled with God's selfless agape love. Not just dribbles, right? But just really filled up And pouring over. It could be boundless, overflowing, extravagant, reckless, excessive love. Imagine as that kind of love started to flow out. Now, remember those survey examples from the last day? If you don't remember them, then listen to Tuesday. You'll find out what they were. But there was a few. Imagine the impact that this kind of agape love would have on those examples of self selfishness, becoming selfless, agape love. That we would become known for this selfless love. So instead of being upset that a party wasn't exactly what we wanted it to be, there'd be a joy, a gratitude in the gift that was given to us. Instead of being filled with anxiety and shutting people out, we'd find people of peace and journey with them in our times of need. Instead of going around being ticked off because having a short fuse, we'd show patience and long-suffering. Instead of being indifferent to the needs of others, just kind of going about our way, we'd be generous in our kindness, our empathy, our understanding. You know, the belligerence towards our roommate or our spouse, we'd just give it up in favor of goodness, We'd push back against the resistance to commit. And instead, our first response would be one of faithfulness. That our word would be good. Instead of being rude and dismissive, our, our interactions would be full of gentleness. And instead of self-indulgence, self-control would rule. I don't know, did you notice what, love, what words I just said? Love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's the fruit of the Spirit, and that's the impact of being filled up with agape love. Imagine what J.B.U. would look like. Imagine what your relationships would look like what our families would look like, our friendships, our dorms, our classrooms, the dining hall. Imagine if we filled up on the radical, extravagant, agape love of the father, the hero of this story. Let's pray. Papa, you have been so very good to us. You have loved us when we've come back, smelly, dirty, and you've put your arms of love around us, and you said, Welcome home. You've come after us when we've been standing on the sidelines, sullen and angry. Come join the party. Thank you, Papa. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your grace, your extravagant love, your selflessness to us. May we be open. May we be receptive. May we soak this up in the core of our being so it overflows Lord, I stand here asking with boldness that your love would flow through this campus. That we would be known by your love, for your love. That people would say, Gee, you, oh, those students, those staff, those faculty, they you know, man, they love well. They're so full of love. That new commandment to love one another just as I have loved you. Show us what it means. Empower us. We ask in the precious name of Jesus. The powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.